Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. As oil-dependent nations seek to shore up their supply while a war between Russia and Ukraine rages, some African nations seem eager to provide more access to fossil fuels. This was evidenced during this September's ministers' meeting in Egypt when representatives from various African nations called on world leaders to avoid approaches that encourage abrupt disinvestments from fossil fuels. But many in Africa have been fighting for justice in the face of abuses by companies that damage the environment and make the continent second only to Russia when it comes to the hazardous practice of gas flaring. In this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with the renowned Nigerian architect, author, and activist Nemo Bassi about what it really means for the health of Africans and the planet when it comes to the exploitation of this so-called resource-rich continent. We will also discuss the history of colonialism's impact on Africa and how the 27th Conference of Parties, which will be held this November in Egypt, is likely to promote false solutions to climate change and refuse to deal in a meaningful way with the climate debt owed to the Global South in general and Africa in particular. Nemo Bassi is a Nigerian architect, environmental activist, author and poet who chaired Friends of the Earth International from 2008 through 2012 and was executive director of Environmental Rights Action for two decades. He is director of the ecological think tank Health of Mother Earth as well as a board member of Global Justice Ecology Project. Nemo Bassi was a co-recipient of the 2010 Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, in 2012, he received the Rafto Human Rights Award. He was also one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment in 2009. Mr. Nemo Bassi, welcome to Breaking Green. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be with you. Mr. Bassi, what is your response to the idea that the African continent is resource rich? What does that translate into historically for the citizens of African nations? And what does that look like in terms of the environment? Well, uh, it's a statement of fact that the African continent is resource-rich. But this has been a big problem for the continent. For the continent. Primarily because of the resource-rich, Africa has been a zone of plunder, a zone of mindless, reckless, irresponsible extraction. And this has gone on for centuries, uh, starting from even the colonial period, pre-colonial to colonial period. Colonial period established the plantation uh, extractivist mode, uh, where lands were converted to plantation for monocropping, all for export. And then came the extraction of minerals. And almost all the conflicts you trace on the continent has been re re related to the drive for extraction of natural, so-called natural resources. I say so-called natural resources because these things are there by nature, not necessarily for economic exploitation, but they are part of nature and we need to respect them as part of nature. 
so yes, uh, the, the resource on the continent has exposed the continent to all kinds of um, all, all sorts of speculators and adventurers. And because of the historical context, we, we found that uh, the, the mode of extraction has been totally disrespectful of the cycles of nature, of the people, the community people who live in this environment. And in the post-colonial period, I said this advisedly, post-colonial because colonialism is not really over. The post-colonial period still carries on with the same mode of extractivism. And this has been very, very destructive to the African environment. In your book, To Cook a Continent, you write, the resource conflicts in Africa have been orchestrated by a history of greed and rapacious consumption. And you say that in your book, you will connect the drive for mindless extraction to the tightening noose of odious debt repayment, and that you will demand a fresh look at the accounting books, asking when environmental costs and other externalities are included, who really owes what to whom? Could you talk a bit about who really owes what to whom, specifically the climate debt that is owed to the global South in general, and the African nations in particular? There's no doubt that there is a climate debt, and indeed an ecological debt, owed to the global South, and Africa in particular, that has not been recognized or accepted. Uh, the arrogance of the exploiters do not just consider even talking about this matter is very, very uh, annoying, I would say. It's extremely disrespectful, whereas it's very clear that for centuries, the regions have been exploited in a way that is extremely harmful without any care about these cars and the destruction of the environment. Now it has become very clear that the sort of exploitation and consumption that has gone on over the years has become a big problem, not just for the regions that were exploited, but for the entire world. Uh, and this has also required uh, the building of resilience and capacity to absorb the harms related to exploitation. Now, this requires financial inputs. But what we're seeing in the world today is the financi financialization of nature. Uh, There's a very clear clear uh, arrangement or attempt to avoid responsibility for historical harm and current harm. Rather, the argument we're hearing is if nature is not, if the financial value is not placed on nature, nobody's going to respect or protect nature. Now, why was no financial cost being placed on the territories that were damaged? Why were they exploited and sacrificed without any consideration at all about what it, the value to those who live in the territory and those who use those resources. So if we're to go the full way with this argument of putting price tags on nature so that nature can be respected, then we have to also look at the historical harm and damage that's been done, place a price tag on it, recognize that this is a debt that's been owed, and have it paid. So clearly there's an ecological debt that has been accumulated over the years without any kind of 
uh, discussion or negotiation about the needed reparation. Apart from this, uh, from modern economic relationships, a, a region like Africa attracts about 150 billion US dollars worth of inflows. But the outflows from tax evasion, tax havens, avoidance of what needs to be paid totals 190 plus billion per year. Uh, and so if you if you check out the check the inflow and the outflow, you find that Africa is a creditor nation. And the figures are just quoted from the World Bank, one of the most conservative institutions you can think about. So it's not a figure uh, drawn up by activists or by campaigners. Uh, so this is a hard minimum amount, clearly showing that the continent is being owed a certain amount and that the continent is a net creditor and not a debtor. There's a lot of lip service given to it, but is there any real response being brought forward by international organizations or nations themselves? None. Absolutely none. In fact, the conference of parties is not nothing much more than a carbon stock exchange. Nations go there to debate and find ways to avoid climate action, completely opposite to what it ought to be. This is why today, Nations are so happy to sign up to, they, they, they happily sign up to the Paris Agreement, knowing that the major element in that agreement is a nationally determined contribution, which is a voluntary mechanism. That which, whatever any country feels they can do, though they could do it. Whatever they feel they would not do, they don't have to do it. There's nothing mandatory about it. They only have to report that this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. Uh, and so far we've seen that if nations do what they say they're going to do, we're on a trajectory for major, major catastrophe because they're not cutting emissions at any level that shows any kind of understanding of the emergency or a sense of what needs to be done. Uh, so the, at the Conference of Parties, I remember in 2009 at Copenhagen, there was an effort by some African delegates to bring up the issue of uh, climate debt or climate reparation. And they, they, one of the top leaders of the delegation from the United States clearly said that, look, we're not going to talk about any kind of historical responsibilities. So it just swept it off the carpet. This was brought up again some years later, swept under the carpet. So where the, the geopolitics of the Conference of Parties is such that even though nations all have one vote each, it doesn't play out in reality. There's, there's strict, very heavy disparity in terms of who holds the power and who, 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 who influences the decision. And it's not just nations who do this, but also corporations who are the front line of the destruction we're talking about. And, and I've heard you say that uh, climate change is actually impacting the African continent more so than other other uh, nations and continents, and that the Paris Accord means the the, the terms of the Paris uh, uh, Accord or agreement means disaster, a calamitous boiling of Africa. Absolutely, and this is why sometimes I wonder why Africa and Poland to go to the Conference of Parties. I've had the misfortune of going to those meetings um, to get a sense of what is going on. But just looking at the at the Paris Agreement itself, 
uh, I, I think it was a very clever piece of document that set a target, a low target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then the upper target was set in a way that is actually very intriguing because it's set as well below two. And my logic is that if anything is well below two, it should be below 1.5. So the upper target cannot be lower than the lower target. Uh, so I, I think there was a big joke or humor in those who formulated those targets. And now the world is already at 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial level. For Africa, the Africa has about 50% higher temperature increase than the global average. Uh, so 1.1 already means about 1.6, 1.7 for Africa. So Africa has already gone above the lower limit. And anything beyond that is going to spell total disaster for the continent. We are already having warmer oceans, greater cyclones. Uh, this is moving to higher latitudes, especially along the southeastern seaboard of Africa. And apart from the small island states who are really in very precarious situation, Africa is having it really bad. And the Conference of Party doesn't seem to understand or even consider that this is a, a situation of critical emergency. You, you've also talked about issues of things like food sovereignty and, and, and the like with Africa. Uh, and, and then we have the RED program. Some of these policies and, and proposed solutions are, are really uh, affecting uh, local communities on, on the African continent. Many of the programs and platforms that are presented as climate solutions have been seen to be false solutions. And the, the bedrock of most of those uh, solutions are carbon offsetting or carbon trading. Um, and this has been a very clever mechanism for avoiding climate action. Uh, and so RED was such one of such uh, formulations. Now, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation is a great idea. We should be supported by everyone looking at that label. But the, the, as they said, the devil is in the detail. Now, everybody wants to reduce deforestation, want to refuse, reduce forest degradation. But what is the meaning in terms of climate action? Uh, it, 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 it has meant securing or appropriating or grabbing some forest territory uh, and then declaring that to be a red forest. And now once that is done, what becomes paramount, important, is that it's no longer a forest of trees, it's now a forest of carbon, a, a carbon sink. So you look at the trees, you don't see them as ecosystems, you don't live, see them as living communities, you are seeing them as carbon stock. And that immediately sets a different kind of relationship between those who were living in the forest, those who need the forest, and those who are now the owners of the forest. Uh, and so it's because of that logic that communities in Africa, some communities have lost access to their forest or lost access to the use of their forest the way they've been using for centuries. Uh, people like the Sengwa community in uh, in Ghana, in Kenya, communities in Uganda, even communities in Nigeria who have been very, very 
who, who have used their own forest, managed their, managed their forest by themselves very effectively for years. And now once the forests are designated as red forest, the whole equation changes. Uh, in Mozambique, there was a time, there, were, there was a, a, a project that a company that bought up a track of forest and then paid the community people about $100 a year to look after the trees for 90 years. Now, that, that was held up as real carbon colonialism or carbon slavery. Uh, eventually, that, that kind of atrocious agreement was struck down. Uh, and so, but you could have this going on and on and on. And the, the sad thing, which is hardly recognized, that red does not stop deforestation because you have one forest designated as a red forest and the other forest close to it is not a red forest. So it's not protected at the same level as the one that is a red forest. So you don't allow loggers into the red forest, but they can go into the other forest. So the logging continues and you just protect some trees in one place, whereas the same amount of trees that were being cut here are being cut elsewhere. And then red also recognizes plantations as forest. And that to me is sound, that is, crazy. A, a plantation, no matter how many trees you plant in it, eucalypt, maybe plant one million eucalyptus tree in one, in one particular place, it's not a forest. It's just a collection of the same species. A forest is a, a location where you have multiple species, uh, really, really, really living ecosystem that have a lot of value to everyone. Uh, listening to you, it, it was coming to my mind that as, as you have written a lot about uh, the exploitation of of the African continent um, with with colonization, uh, that this uh, these nature based solutions uh, almost seem like an extension of that exploitation. But is this really a, a bookkeeping rationalization to allow richer or so-called richer nations, or are those responsible for the pollution, let's say, to continue polluting? That's exactly what it is. Uh, I, I think the, the narrative has been so cleverly constructed that when you hear, for example, reduce emission from deforestation and forest degradation, everybody say, yes, we want to do that. And now we're heading nature-based solution. Who doesn't want nature-based solution? These are ideas that were brought up the way indigenous communities have lived with the environment, using following nature, working with nature, respecting nature, and nature provided the solution to the challenges they've had for centuries, for millennia. And so, so now some clever people now adopt the same, appropriate the same terminology. So that by the time indigenous communities say, we want nature-based solution, they'll say, well, that's what we're talking about. Whereas they're not talking about that at all. Uh, uh, this we've seen this over and over again. That the green economy, you have a green economy. So oh, this is really beautiful. The color green is life, is beautiful, and the green economy means something completely contrary to what one would think it meant. And now we have also the blue economy. Blue is another lovely color. It's a blue economy. So you're going to appropriate, partition the oceans and the rivers, and have deep sea mining. Have all kinds of all kinds of activities going on there. Exclude artisanal fishers and communities who depend on the oceans, and and then you generate everything's about generating value chains and revenue, completely forgetting about who we are as part of nature. So the the, the entire scheme has been one insult after another, and indigenous people have to continuously 
depend on their wisdom and vision and cosmology, they would denounce the appropriation of these terms that tend to cause confusion and create more problems in the world. The very idea of putting a price on the, on the services of Mother Earth uh, and claiming and now appropriating those, uh, the, the financial capital from, from those resources, from, from those processes, is, is, is another, another very horrible, horrible way by which uh, people are being exploited. I don't remember which book it was, uh, Mr. Bossi, but in, in one, you, you, you talked about what has been done to Africa. And I, and I remember, maybe it was in a foreword to one of the books, you talked about how Africa... The Kuka, the Kuka continent, yes. In, in the beginning was seen as just a coastline because people hadn't gone inland and they... And, and, and inland, there were great nations flourishing in, in, in balance with, with nature. So now, you know, we, we, we have this problem created by these nations which are emitting so much carbon dioxide from fossil fuels, and they are, again, seeking some sort of solution that, that weighs heavily on, on this continent. I think it's a nice way to sum it up. Africa sits right there in the center of the world, surrounded totally by water, so you can go to the continent from anywhere, from any direction especially with the Suez Canal at Egypt. So you can take a boat and ride around the entire continent. So the continent is so vulnerable to exploitation. And today, virtually all the major infrastructure on the continent all head to the seaport uh, for export because the useful, usefulness of Africa is as a storehouse, as, as a storehouse for nature's resources, the gifts of nature. And so that, that continues. Before the, the clash with imperial adventurers, especially from Europe and from elsewhere, there were very viable uh, empires and kingdoms across the African continent with very deep and very democratic systems of collective leadership even when they were kings, there were structures that were ex more, even maybe more dem democratic than what we have today. And in a place like the Bini Kingdom, I live in Bini City, in the Bini Kingdom, um, when the first Europeans got there, they were amazed at what they saw. The artistic creativity of the people, in metal casting, especially in bronze casting. And some of those artifacts were stolen and taken to Europe. And discussions are only being made now about returning some of them. The amazing, amazing quality of what was done so many hundreds of years ago. Um, in Benicity, they found that the streets were so well laid out street, with street lights. And people did not need to lock their homes to have doors in their homes because stealing and antisocial behavior were just not known. So we had a, a system where people lived so close to nature, had major respect to each other, to one another. And this is what was cap always captured in the African philosophy of Ubuntu, of seeing the next person's humanity as being part of who you are. So you are not apart from your neighbor, neither you are apart from nature. In my, in my culture, we call it etiwem, which means a good life, almost like what in North America is called uh, uh, buen vivere. 
good life, living well. And living well is not about accumulation. It's not about, it's not about competition. It's not about power. It's about living in harmony with your neighbor and with nature. This is what Africa has been known for, was known for. And I think this is the gift that the continent has for the future of humanity. If we think we want to stay on this planet that can well do without us. Thank you for that. Um, I've heard you say that complex problems have simple solutions. I, I'm paraphrasing possibly, but I've heard that. So we've been talking about the problem of climate change. We've talked about what uh, the North wants to do with its bookkeeping and its offsets and its so-called nature-based solutions. I mean, is, this is a, this is a, would appear to be a complex problem, but maybe there's a simple solution. Could could you talk to us what that looks like? And and I, I'm suspecting that possibly it might be harder for 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 the North to accept. Absolutely, yes, you, you are right. Simple solutions are avoided in today's world because they don't support capital, and capital is ruling the world. Capitalism has ruined everything. The market has ruined everything. Life is simpler than people think. And so the complex problems we have today, they're all man-made, human-made, made by humans' love of complexities. And so we're having all kinds of imaginative ways of exploiting one another. Fictions built into empires and all kinds of things. You know, the very idea of money itself is is something that just comes from the imagination. Because, uh, and I think this is developing so quickly today that you don't need to even see printed currencies. You don't need to see it. You just wave your card at a machine and you can make purchases uh, because it's all about the idea and not the reality. But the idea of capital accumulation has led to uh, massive, massive losses and massive destruction and and has, has, has left the world to the brink, especially as seen in the massive biodiversity loss and the various extinctions that we're seeing around us. And now climate change is capping it up with freak storms, tornadoes, cyclones, typhoons, with wildfires in all kinds of places, floods everywhere. And so that there's no part of the world today that doesn't recognize that something has gone wrong. But what needs to be done, that is what the world is yet to wake up to. Now, we've been hearing talks of uh, defining the carbon budget is almost gone. Uh, I, I believe that the carbon budget is gone, really. We're we are living an overdraft right now, completely in the red. And so we don't have time to debate about what needs to be done tomorrow or what needs to be done in 2050 or 2060, as we saw uh, as we're seeing in the conference of party discussions labeled as net zero. Now, the simple solution that we need if we want to tackle global warming is to leave the carbon in the ground, leave the oil in the soil, leave the coal in the hole. Just as simple as that. And don't, don't call gas a, a transition gas, a transition fuel, because it's not. It's just as bad as any other fossil fuel. And you see, if we were really truthful to ourselves about the fact that this is what needs to be done. We would, we would focus on encouraging ourselves to use our imagination to develop new concepts of energy, 
redefine energy itself, redefine what we need to do, redefine how we need to live, and work towards that. But it does appear that um, um, that humans don't want to don't want any inconvenience at all. We are ready to wait for the cataclysm to happen. We are ready to for to 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 have the unthinkable happen rather than to plan and behave in a way that will be inconveniencing for a moment, but in the long run, helpful to everyone. And so we talk about carbon offset. I, I don't pollute enough so I can get carbon credit and someone else who's polluting too much can pay me to take up the space that I'm not polluting into. And then we, we balance it up and say, this is net zero or we, we, we achieve zero. But when people leave the fossils in the ground, they are seen as anti-progress and anti-development. Whereas these are the real climate action champions. People are the Ogoni people. The Ogoni people in Niger Delta, uh, the territory from where King Salawewa came from, who was murdered by the Nigerian state in 1995. Now the Ogoni people from 1993 have kept the oil in their territory in the ground. That is millions upon millions of carbon locked up in the ground. That is climate action. That is real carbon sequestration, not polluting and capturing carbon and not putting mirrors in the sky to reflect and not genetically engineering trees to either absorb more carbon or reflect more radiation back into space. So the simple solutions remain the best way forward for humanity. And the sooner we wake up to it, the better for us. I've heard you mention how fossil fuels are finite anyway. It's a finite resource. And, and we have this idea of material growth and also the, the notion of a developing nation. So the notion of a developing nation in the world of finite resources, what does it really mean? And, and does that make sense? Developing nations in a finite world, that's a nice way to put that question. And, you know, if you look at it deeply, the question is, what is development? And that is the way I like to tackle that kind of the question. And, and this is where we make the mistake when we don't define development. We have to define development as something that is not necessarily universal. Uh, uh, we could say, okay, uh, just to define what, where do we want to go? Where do we want to get to? If all of us want to be like, let's say, uh, we want all our cities to be like New York City, for example. Now, how much resources do we need? How many, how, how much minerals do we have to dig up, to extract? How many forests are we going to cut down? How, wh where would all that resource come from to replicate that all over the world? And the answer is that it is simply impossible to do. It's impossible to do. And so today we have to see some of what has been called development as actually Maldevelopment. You like seeing cancers all over the world. And you saw this cancer looks so beautiful. It's colored beautifully. I want to have that. We have to realize that this thing that has led us into this major poly crisis needs to be redefined so that we can think in a different way and live in harmony with nature. Mr. Bossi, in researching your work, it, it was clear to me that you often don't speak about your personal history, 
But I have seen it noted that your primary education was interrupted with war and that you said that you saw many dead bodies when you were young. You also um, have taken direct aim at what you have termed the petro-military complex. Would, would you mind talking about what type of human toll you have seen when it comes to corporate or state-sanctioned violence in the interest of resource extraction? Hmm. Oh, this is this is something that is very painful and is also very visible. Um, the the civil war uh, when you refer to my early years as a child, the civil war in Nigeria was not only driven by um, by ethnic nations trying to be superior to the other, was also a fight about oil but who controls the oil. And this is what has, till today, distorted the political equation in Nigeria and in many places. We've seen dictators built on, uh, on the dream of sitting on petrodollars. We've seen nations destroyed. I mean, the, 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 the destruction that we see in the Middle East like in Iraq, what we saw in Iraq, what we saw in North Africa, in Libya, for example, can also be traced to the need to control the results. Because even in the midst of the war, no matter how voracious the war is, the extraction of minerals or oil or gas never really stopped, which is very interesting. Uh, and it shows that something there's something, something to be said about that. Uh, even in climate change discussion, the, the emissions from the from military equipment, military aircraft and ships and so on, they're not computed as part of uh, when they're counting the molecules are covered in the atmosphere, which means that there's a big hole, hole even in those uh, mathematical discussions. And yeah, we, we've seen we've seen also the way, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, the way the war in Ukraine is also affecting, shifting attention to Africa to get resources, gas, oil, oil field from, from world heritage location that nobody should think of uh, going to extract anything from. Uh, and so the power of the of fossil fuel industry has been such that human rights take, take backstage when it comes to access, getting access for, for this resource. Uh, just last week, uh, a, few, a few days ago, um, there were protests on the street of Kampala in Uganda, uh, protests against the European Union's uh, assessment that the East African gas crude oil pipeline would would uh, infringe on human rights and should be suspended for one year to re-examine the environmental impact assessment. Uh, now, that, that protest was applauded by the government of Uganda. Now, a few days later, some university students protested, went also on a, a protest march uh, in support of the assessment of the European Union, calling for reassessment of that pipeline. And as we speak, nine of those students are in detention, are in prison, just a few days apart. So, so when it comes to supporting exploitation of fossil fuel resources, everything else was suspended including common sense. 
Could you talk about what is gas flaring and how much of it is happening on the African continent and what that means to communities living nearby? Yeah, um, gas flaring, simply put, is the setting gas on fire in the oil fields. Uh, because when crude oil is extracted in some locations, the crude oil comes out of the ground with, with natural gas and with water and other chemicals. So the companies at the flow station separate the crude oil, separate the gas from the crude oil, and separate also the produced water that, were in the, that, was, that came out with this in the process. Now, the gas that, is, that, is, that comes out of the well with the oil can be re-injected into the well. And that is almost like carbon capture and storage, where it helps to, it goes into the well, also helps to push out more oil from the well, so you have more carbon released to the atmosphere. Uh, so you could do that, and oil companies do that. They've been doing that for many years. Uh, it's only now that that's been classified as geoengineering for, for climate change conversations. Uh, and so, Secondly, the gas can be collected and utilized for industrial purposes or for cooking, you know, processed for as natural, liquefied natural gas, or the gas could just be set on fire. And that's what we have at many points, over 100 and probably over 120 locations in the Niger Delta. So you have these giant furnaces. So they, they pump tons of smoke, black carbon into the atmosphere. A pump, terrible, a cocktail, a cocktail of dangerous elements to the atmosphere, uh, all and sometimes in the middle of the communities, and sometimes horizontally, not vertical stacks. So it really, really poisons the environment, poisons the, the soil, the water, the air. And because of the elements in the gas flares, uh, we have high incidence of cancers, of blood disorders of bronchitis, of asthma, of skin diseases, of acid rain, uh, which corrodes the roof and infrastructure in the area. And so you have bed defects, all kinds of disease imaginable caused by gas flaring. It also reduces agricultural productivity up to one kilometer from, massively up to one kilometer from the location of the, of the furnace. So it's something that is also clearly illegal in Nigeria. It's a law that came into effect in 1984, uh, made gas flaring illegal. But the law also left a loophole that the companies can flare if they have a permit from the minister and if they pay a fine. And the fine is just a tiny fraction of the value of the gas. So companies can pay the fine. They don't even pay the fine and keep on flaring. And they've been doing this. Now, the communities have been protesting against this. In 2005, one community uh, actually sued Shell and Nigerian government in the high court in Benin City, Nigeria. And the court ruled in November 2005 that gas flooding is against the right to life of the people in the communities. And it should be stopped. And Shell was asked to produce a plan of how they were going to stop flaring gas in that community quickly. But would you believe it? For about, uh, this was 2005, it was only in 2017 or thereabout that they went to file an appeal against that judgment. I mean, I, 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 I'm not a lawyer, but I, I think it's atrocious 
to, to think of to going to file an appeal against a judgment after more than a decade when the judgment had been delivered. And it was only in 2022 that the first hearing of the appeal took place. So communities are still campaigning against this. And nowadays, companies like Shell, ExxonMobil are trying to divest from onshore fields. They, now, their divestment in Nigeria is different from divestment in the United States, for example. <laughs> I know in the U.S., public institutions, universities, and so on, are pulling their money out of fossil fuel, divesting from fossil fuel. Now, the fossil fuel companies are the ones divesting in Nigeria. What this means is the selling of their facilities to Nigerian companies and taking the profit, taking the money, leaving the responsibility of 64 years of pollution, of massive destruction of the ecosystem, and either moving offshore or leaving the country completely. Now, clearly, they, they appear to diverse and leave, but the people, that, the companies that hand over must be in their payroll, possibly. And then going offshore, further into deep water, means they know that when they get into deeper waters, they're going to be less regulatory oversight. Communities would only see the spill when it washes onshore. Fishermen will have more human rights abuses when they try to fish anywhere near those facilities as they do the, the kind of things that they face today already. And companies will be totally uh, unaccountable for what they do offshore. Uh, I mean, we've had a situation where if you hear about the level of oil theft going on in Niger Delta today and the level of pollution, there is almost like what we see in cowboy movies. You know, wild, wild Niger Delta, where we don't hear of a case about government just discovering a four kilometers long pipeline going from an onshore location offshore. Four kilometers long pipeline, illegally constructed into the ocean and pumping oil for nine solid years before it was discovered. That doesn't mean to, that doesn't seem like something accidental or something well hidden. Is clearly a massive mafia that is benefiting from industrial despoilation of the Niger Delta, and they want to replicate this across the continent, in Okavango, in Uganda, in Ghana, in Swalom Leta, in Senegal, everywhere, in Congo, in Virunga Park, in Congo. So it's not stopping. The world says we have to move from fossil fuels, but we are seeing more investment in that sector at a time when the wells should be closed down. So you worked early on in your career uh, trying to address a lot of the issues of gas flaring, and that was a dangerous undertaking. I mean, for, for, for people, yourself and others that you know and knew, uh, that was not an easy task. That was a dangerous one. It's, was a, it's still a dangerous thing today. Uh, the gas flares are not locations that you can just go pick up your camera and take photos. They are, they, they are protected by the military. The same with when there's an oil, blow, oil well blowout or oil spill. You, will not, you, will not, you can easily gain access to those locations. So we find security forces and oil companies protecting pollution rather than protecting the environment or the people. It's still very dangerous as we speak. 
one final question. Uh, I wanted to discuss the future COP coming up in Egypt. Do you have any hopes, given the history of, of these COPs? Uh, one, are you going to participate? Two, is there any hope for some real change here? The only hope I see with the COP is the hope of what people can do outside the COP. The mobilizations that the COPs instigate or generate in meetings across the world talk about climate change, people taking reaction, indigenous groups organizing and choosing different kinds of different methods of agriculture that help to cool the planet, people just doing what they can. That to me is what holds hope. The COP itself is a rich process that works in a very colonial manner of loading climate responsibility on the victims of climate change. Well, thank you, Mr. Nima Bassi, for joining us on Breaking Green. Thank you very much for having this conversation with me. You have been listening to Breaking Green, a global justice ecology project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 1-716-257-4187. That's 1-716-257-4187.